when does God hide his word? One week ago, we began a brief series looking into the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. Elijah, a non-writing prophet in the Old Testament. Not an Isaiah, not a Jeremiah, not an Ezekiel, not a Daniel. There's not a book in the Old Testament that bears the name Elijah. Yet he is of such renown that he is the last prophet mentioned in the Old Testament. Come down to the last verses of Malachi, the last verses of the Old Testament. And we read in Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He did not mean that Elijah himself would return. One like Elijah, he was saying, would immediately precede the coming of the Messiah. Jesus himself named John the baptizer as being the Elijah who was the one to come. The one who was to come. That's John the baptizer. He's the Elijah. Think about it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, and James, and John, what happened? There came Moses and Elijah to speak with Jesus. Elijah had been gone from this earth for centuries, and yet there he is, and he was the prophet with Moses that returned. He was taken from life here in the most unusual way. We'll look at that in a few weeks. No person in Scripture departed this earth with the drama that we see in Elijah's departure. The best way to think of Elijah as an individual, as a person, as a prophet, a man of God, certainly. But think of him as a green beret. The special forces, two words always come to mind with Elijah, action and power. Consider the way, and we looked at this last week, that he walks that he walks onto the stage in Scripture. In the last part of 1 Kings chapter 16, the writer is simply, and you can just see it, he's just not writing about the evil of the extreme evil of Ahab and Jezebel's reign. But he is setting the stage. He's setting the stage for the entrance of this great prophet, for the entrance of Elijah. He writes of the extreme wickedness of the land in Ahab and Jezebel. The evil they wrought in Israel surpassed that of all the kings in the past combined in the northern kingdom. We learned last week that Elijah, this man of God, actually prayed for the drought to come. It wasn't that God came to Elijah and said, I'm sending a drought. Elijah prayed for the drought to come on the basis that God had promised that if Israel fell into such idolatry, there he would send a drought. Last week's sermon was entitled, When Does a Godly Man Pray for a Drought? And we saw it. A godly man pray for a drought across the land. 
This week's message asks another intriguing question. When does God hide his word? So let's look at this. What was the first command God gave Elijah after he had announced the drought to Ahab? It's right there. Just as soon as he tells Ahab, there will be a drought. Look at verse 3. Depart from here, Elijah, and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. The brook of Kareth was on the eastern border of Israel. It was across the Jordan from the main portion of Israel. It was near Tishbe, which was, which was Elijah's hometown. Samaria, the nation's capital, the main body of Israel, was on the western side, more populated. So, so why in, in this, this, this portion of land, this isolated land from the rest of Israel, near the book of Kareth, during, the, during this period in the northern kingdom, it was known to be uninhabited and isolated. So God sends this great prophet, this great preacher to a place where there's no crowd, no one to hear. He's isolated. Why? Si, why did God send Elijah there? And you say, John, that's a, that's a silly question. Why did he send Elijah to this outback, to this wasteland, to this region desolate of cities and, and roads? The answer is obvious. We would quickly assume that he did this to protect him from Ahab and Jezebel. They had been on a mission to eradicate, to kill all the prophets of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were trying to destroy any vestige of the faith of the fathers. Yet, was this really necessary to send him to this region? Uh, there was the southern kingdom of Israel. They would have welcomed Elijah there. There was no persecution of the prophets there at the time. Even in northern Israel, in the, in the northern kingdom, there were prophets hiding in the caves, being protected there by groups of 50s. Think about it. Elijah would have been a great improvement, a great help and encouragement to those prophets in those caves. To have the great prophet Elijah there with them. So what was God doing? Certainly he was trying to protect him. But there was another much more important reason that God sent Elijah to the remote region. Think about it. Who was Elijah? He was not just another believer. He was not just another prophet. He was the prophet of the day in Israel. He was the preacher of Israel. He was the bearer of God's word for Israel. God was removing, purposely removing Elijah from the land. And this becomes more emphatic. What happens when the brook of Kareth dries up? That brook was still in Israel. It was out on the border, but it was still in Israel. 
From there, he sends him to a place near Tyre and Sidon, which is outside of Israel. He took him completely out of the land. God was directing him to isolation and to silence instead of sending him to preach in Israel. God was removing his word from Israel. Remember when the angel, the New Testament, came to Zacharias, the father of John the baptizer, to announce that he and Elizabeth in their old age would have this child? Remember that angel, as he foretold the conception and birth of John the baptizer, used Elijah as prototype prophet in the Old Testament. Look at Luke 1.17. This is what the angel said to Zechariah. And he will go, this one who will be born, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That he, it will be, he didn't say of Isaiah, he didn't say of Elisha, he didn't say of Jeremiah, he didn't say of Moses. He said in the spirit and power of Elijah. Zechariah, your son will be a great prophet. An Elijah, if you will. What was Jesus' call? John the baptizer, the greatest prophet who had ever lived in all of Israel. And yet, this prototype, this, this, or this, this descendant of Elijah, this man who wore the, the, the cape of prophecy, the robe of prophecy like Elijah, this man who was the Elijah of the New Testament, as he was being sent to Israel to preach. Think about that. He was being sent to announce the Messiah. But the first Elijah, God took him out of Israel. It's just so obvious. He was removing him. He was leaving Israel in silence. We see this time and time again in Scripture. We see God removing his word in the silence of God. I want us to look, take a moment to look at one specific time recorded by Luke that indirectly involved this New Testament Elijah. Look at Luke 23:7. And when he learned that he, this is this is Pilate, and when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priest and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Jesus. And Herod with the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Folks, Herod was another Ahab. They were both antichrists with a small A. John the baptizer, 
the ambassador to the Messiah, John the baptizer, the Elijah of the New Testament. Herod, this Herod, before whom Jesus stood, this Herod had executed the New Testament Elijah. He had beheaded John the baptizer because of his preaching. Just as Ahab had done, he refused to hear preaching of this great prophet. Now, in the passage we just read, Jesus, the prophet of Israel, the prophet of all prophets, stands before Herod, and Herod tries to engage him in conversation. He had heard of all the miracles. He wants Jesus to amuse him, to amuse his court. Do a trick, Jesus. Do a trick. Entertain my court with your magic. He spoke at length trying to engage him. Jesus said nothing. Then Herod joined in the mocking parody and turned Jesus into a clown. He put a robe on him. You say you're a king? We put a robe on him. Later, the Romans, when he goes back to Pilate's court, the Romans see the purple robe and they knew what Herod had done. And so they wove a crown of thorns to continue the cruel satire. Herod mocked Jesus. He teased Jesus. He laughed at Jesus. Herod spoke to Jesus. He, Herod required, requested a miracle. Jesus could have done something that only God could do, as he had done before. He could have turned Herod's chair to gold. He could have healed anyone there who was sick. He could have preached a sermon. He could have called down the thunder. How did Jesus respond to Herod? Silence. He spoke not a word. You know, when Paul stood before Agrippa, he preached and he preached powerfully. Before Herod, Jesus spoke not a word. Something happened in the episode with Herod that happens nowhere in the Gospels. A man speaks to Jesus over an extended amount of time, and Jesus does not say a word. Prophet Isaiah wrote about this. In Isaiah 53, 7, he said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I don't think the pilot there was, I mean, the, the prophet there was speaking of the weakness of Jesus. I think he was speaking of the condemnation of Jesus. For that silence was a sign of God's judgment, of God's wrath. Jesus did not answer Herod. He answered with the loud sounds of silence. Silence that spoke of his contempt for Herod. The silence spoke of Jesus' holy regard for God's word. I'll not drag God's word into this sewer. The silence of Herod, the, the silence spoke of Herod as a man who was condemned already. Jesus' silence was saying, Herod, I sent you a man 
a man who preached as no other. Elijah reborn, I sent him, and you killed him. You killed him because you hated his preaching. You killed him because his preaching exposed your perverse and murderous character. You killed him because of a teenage girl's seductive dance. I'll not waste my breath. I will not waste pearls on swine. The evangelical church, oh, Jesus didn't speak like that. I've had Christians say that to me. That, that's not in Scripture that you don't cast your pearls before swine. Not only did Jesus talk like that, when he did talk like that, he was practicing a godly biblical principle. Look at Matthew 7, 6 on your scripture sheet. But do not, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn them to attack you. Jesus' silence was making a statement about Herod's debauched condition. That is an aspect of God's judgment, the silence of God. When a nation, when a culture, when a people becomes so wicked, so perverted, so debauched, God will remove his word and say, we are done here. I've taken that much time with the New Testament just to get this point across. It's all through scripture. You see, in Elijah's day, there were two judgments taking place in northern Israel. There were two droughts taking place in Ahab's kingdom. The physical drought of no rain. When the land was as dry as dust. Think about this for a minute. But this is Fayette County. This is an agrarian community. Think if it did not rain in Fayette County for three years. What would happen out here? What would it look like? What would happen to the farms? But there was another judgment that was much worse. There was the drought of God's word. There was no prophet bringing God's word to the people. Both were God's judgments. That's why God told Elijah, go to Kareth, go to the isolated part of the land. Then he sent him even outside of Israel to the pagans in Tyre and Sidon. Folks, the drought and famine of God's word is far more serious than the physical drought and famine brought on by the absence of rain. Physical drought and famine bring on physical illness and death. Whereas the drought of God's word brings on a spiritual death, a death of a soul, the soul of a nation, the soul of an individual. By the time Ahab came to the throne in northern Israel, the nation had been in a spiritual and moral decline for decades. Slowly, the prophets had been disappearing. Oh, the, there were many preachers and religious leaders, 
but they were pseudo-prophets, prophets of Baal and prophets of Asherah, who were cheering the immorality of the culture, pushing the immorality of the culture, saying in a time of judgment, all is well, everything's good here. True prophets were alien to this culture and were outlaws. Where I'm headed. I believe the present age in our country is the culture of Ahab. There's a biblical principle that we see over and over again in Scripture. When a people have had the Word of God, when a people have had the gospel of salvation and have chosen intentionally to ignore and oppose the Word of God, that God then removes it from their midst. My father sometimes operated on this principle. My brother is four years older than I am. When he was 14 and I was 10, I always wanted to play football with him and his friend. They were good football players. My father would not let me play with them because of the size differential. He was afraid I would be injured. I begged, I pleaded to be able to play with Preston and his friends. Finally, one day, when they were off to the neighborhood field, and I begged him fearlessly and vehemently, let me go, let me play. My dad relented, and he said this to me. John, you want to play? I will let you play. But when you get hurt, and you will get hurt, don't come crying to me. He was saying, you want to live that way? You want to ignore my counsel, my wisdom, my words? I'll let you, I'll let you live that way. I'll give you over to your own folly. Over and over again, God said to Israel, you want to live without my word? I'll let you live without my word. I'll take it away. Less than a century after Elijah, God sent another prophet to the northern kingdom. It was even worse then. That prophet's name was Amos. The land had continued to descend into idolatry and materialism and immorality. Look what God said through Amos. Look at Amos 8.11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. People, that is a hard, fast, true doctrine of God. You discard the word of God and treat it as if it were nothing, then I'll remove it from your midst, from your families, from your towns, from your cities. And like men search for water and food inside of a drought and famine, you will search for my word and you will not find it. 
Sometimes we hear the question inside the church. The world comes to us and says, what about the people that don't have God's word? What about the people that do not have the gospel? What about the people who have never heard of Jesus? As a church of Jesus Christ, we are indeed called to take the gospel to the world, to go preach the word of God. For centuries, we've been translating the Bible into every language, into every tongue, all over the globe. And that's a good thing. But right now, in 2020, we had better be concerned with something else. We better be concerned with what happens to nations who have God's word, who have known the truth, who have known the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, but have ultimately rejected it and turned hostile to God and his word. How many of us have said in the last few weeks and months, what's happening? We talked about Elijah last week, looked at the world around him through the lens of God's word. That's how we need to look at the world around us in this country right now. This morning, Christ Presbyterian, the preaching of Christ Presbyterian, this church and the truth on which we stand stands in the gap, stands at a crucial place. We're living in a country that has known the preaching and teaching of God's Word like few countries in the history of mankind. Perhaps no nation has heard preaching more, the preaching of God's Word more than the United States. Yet we are a nation that is intentionally, that willfully, by our own design, moving away from God's Word. Moving away from the absolutes of God's Word. The gospel of God's Word. Question. Where are the state universities of our land spiritually? Where are they? question. Where are the arts? Where's the cinema? Where's Hollywood spiritually? Question. Where's the media spiritually? Where's the government spiritually? Where are courts spiritually? Where Congress spiritually? Where are the economic institutions spiritually? You have the same answer to all. There's one answer to all of those questions. They're moving away and hostile to God's world, moving away as quickly as they can. You can talk to me about the people who have not had the Bible, but there's something worse, folks. People and nations that have had God's word, who have enjoyed the blessings of God's word, being taught in the power of the Holy Spirit, then a generation takes it lightly. Another generation forgets the value of God's word forgets the truth of God's word. The prophets of Baal come on the scene, and they're all around us. 
<laughs> Someone asked me, tell me about the prophets of Baal. Tell me about the Asher. And all I had to say was, just look around you. You got it. It's a new Baal. The neo-gods of Baal and the Asher. You see, it's one thing when you take God's word out of the land. But it's another thing with what takes its place. Baal, the prophets of Baal come on the scene with promises of pleasure and prosperity. That's the real danger of idolatry. The gods we imagine, the gods that we weld into being are lies. They lie about immorality. They lie about morality. There are no absolutes. They lie about marriage. They lie about true manhood and true womanhood. They lie about money, the economy. They lie about history and what happens. God removes his word. If you don't think that will happen here, then you don't believe scripture. Let me say that again. If you're saying that will never happen here, you don't believe God's word then. There were people in Elijah's day that said, there won't be a drought. Right. God removes his word and turns us over to the lies of our idols. And then ultimately, a chaotic reconstruction, deconstruction takes place. I'll close with this. What was it that Joshua said to Israel? just before he died. Joshua's generation was the greatest generation of that entire era. There was not another generation like Joshua's generation for the next 500 years. What was it Joshua said to Israel before he died? Look at Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river and the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. We're faced with that same situation. Idols are about. Baal and Asherah plague our land. We still have a choice. But there will come a day. And it is coming to this land where God will silence the prophets. And there will no longer be a word to save us. Choose this day whom you will serve.